Hello friends, my name is Ian Graham and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia in Princeton, New Jersey. And I am so excited to introduce to you this teaching series, a series that will look at the story, the big story that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation, a series we're calling From Garden City. The story begins in a garden and it ends in a city and is defined at every twist and turn by the love and the presence of God. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. And so if you've ever tried to read the Bible or you've ever been asked, what what actually is the Bible about? We hope that this teaching series will be a blessing to you. It will be an invitation to see the big story of the Bible and to see your story in light of that beautiful, gracious, life-giving, eternal story. So wherever you are, we pray this is a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you. said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Thanks. (laughs) The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, we are all about just pure excellence here, and every once in a while. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you for that, Josiah. Well, we've been in a teaching series that I, uh, again, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can communicate this enough, I think is, is everything. And we've really been asking the question, what is the big story that the Bible is telling? And it can seem kind of esoteric when you start focusing on what is the wide angle story, but I actually think that it changes everything. Because, because as we've seen, as we sort of discussed throughout this series, the way we see God will be the way that we see ourselves. The way that we see God will define and shape everything else. And so we've been walking slowly through the story, and our intention is to tell the story from Genesis to Revelation over the course of the next several months. And we have made it thus far to Genesis 3. Now, if you have any familiarity with the Bible, you recognize that Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and we're on the third chapter, so we are really uh, trucking along. I promise you there is some intention to the pace and that we will pick it up, but we are still going to, at the end of today, we will still be in Genesis. And that's because the way a story starts has so much to say about what will unfold in the story. And we often miss this with the scriptures. We think that some angelic robot came down and dictated a bunch of thus saith the Lord's to some people a long time ago. And they were like, okay, I'll just write that down. It has no, I have no idea what they're saying. But the scriptures are a story, a library of stories, really. And they're inviting us to see God and his salvation and to see what it means to be human. And so I, I hope that you've been tracking along with our teachings. If you haven't, there's, there's podcasts. You can hop on, search for Ecclesia Princeton. 
Um, I, I really, really believe in this teaching as, as formative and that it will help see your, uh, it will help you see your life in light of the grand story of the Bible. And I also think it will shape you and in Christ's likeness. And so last week we saw the disruption of Shalom. Zechariah opened Genesis chapter 3 for us in the garden. As God walks through the garden in the cool of the evening, there is a serpent asking the question, did God really say that? And this opens up, and as, as the woman and the man do the thing that God had commanded them not to do, this opens up the world to brokenness. And Zechariah opened uh, that text for us. And the story of Genesis 3 through 11, the chapters that follow, is one of entropy. Things are falling apart. The garden that was woven with shalom that we talked about so thoroughly in Genesis 1 and 2 has been lost Humanity now experiences a profound sense of dislocation. The fundamental element of this curse is that we are removed from the garden. We are east of Eden. And in east of Eden, what's going on is brother is killing brother. The world is so rampant with rebellion and idolatry that God makes up his mind that he will put an end to it in Genesis 6, if not for Noah. And in Genesis chapter 11, we're going to see today that humanity has their own ideas about what it means uh, to make a name for ourselves. East of Eden is not only dislocation from our home, which is to be at home in God's presence. It is an alienation from our call. As we saw in Genesis chapter 2, what does it mean to be human? What, What do I do with all these urges to play and to make and to explore and to study and to make order? What do I do with all that? How does that reflect God's kingdom? Well, that is exactly intrinsic to who we were made to be. And in Genesis 3, the beginning of alienation, we are lost from our fundamental call to be made in the image of God. Life east of Eden is marked by dislocation and alienation. We live in a refugee world. And I was, uh, I had this experience, I was in Charleston this past week, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Atlanta Braves fan, which is not a, oh wow, okay, <laughs> did not expect any reaction other than negative on that one, but so uh, if you've seen me throughout town, I, I typically do my work around other people, I just enjoy being around people, I think, I think it's, it's like you're trying to, to tell the gospel of Jesus in a way that makes sense, and so I'll often find myself at coffee shops or uh, bars, and the, uh, the Braves were playing, and so I went and sat at a bar just for the three hours. Uh, there's something beautiful about the rhythm of watching a baseball game. And I worked on this, this talk. And I'm just watching in Charleston, South Carolina, not a place I live, not a place I'm super familiar with. And I'm just watching our life east of Eden. And, you know, just like the sort of the, the, the mundane talk. Everybody's talking about the football games that had taken place the day before, like endlessly. And, you know, just like, all right, like, yeah. But it's but just like, what does it mean for us to not know who we are? And I'm not suggesting that everybody who sits at a bar doesn't know who they are. I was there too. But what I'm suggesting is just sort of observing. And I think uh, the poet W.H. Auden, like, I think he had this sense. And he wrote this, uh, he wrote a lot of just observations about the human condition. And he writes, he writes, faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home, lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. 
All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home. When I think about dislocation and alienation, when I think about the entropy of Genesis 3 through 11, it's exactly that. Is that we have been, we are wayward from our home. We've been moved east of Eden, and yet we're trying to forge a home and a life for ourselves. And we're going to see how God responds to this today. How does God meet the brokenness that we introduce into the world? When we trade our call to be image bearers, what does God do? Any good story has conflict. And today we'll be introduced to some of that conflict and some of the way that God is going to resolve that conflict. And as as Zechariah painted for us so well last week, our only response is not to find comfort in distancing ourselves from the narrative of the entropy that is introduced in the garden. We live in an individualistic world. Think about it. It's all about, as we talked about in the first week of this series, live your truth. Do your thing. We live in this hyper-individualized world. We can choose from almost an endless array of options. What song do you want to listen to? You can choose from every song that has ever been recorded. Sounds like freedom, right? And yet sometimes it feels like slavery. (laughs) You're like, I don't know what I want to listen to. I used to have a CD that would tell me. Everything becomes systemic in our world when we begin to talk about things like sin. And this is not to deny the reality of systemic sin. It is a present reality. Paul refers to them as powers and principalities that we war against. And so we've seen how systemic sin presents itself in areas like white supremacy and racism. We've seen how systemic sin presents itself in cultures, corporations, in Hollywood. We've seen this play out in our world. But one of the things that we do in our individualized society is sin always becomes corporate. It always becomes about those people over there or the structure. And sometimes we fail to say that I, too, have participated in the way of death. I, too, am a participant in the ways of anti-culture and anti-God, and I need to confess and receive the grace that he has for me. The presence of systemic sin does not absolve us from our participation as individuals in, in systems of brokenness and rebellion against God. In Genesis 1, God is the author of life, blessed and given to us. In Genesis 2, God is the author of culture, given to humanity to steward So our choices against God in Genesis 3 are inherently anti-life and what Philip Reef calls anti-culture. The question is not, is there systemic sin or is there merely individual sin? The question is, will we be honest in our confession about our participation in both? And this is really what Genesis 3 through 11 have been painting. Like, And we don't really need this information, right? Zechariah talked about last week. The brokenness of the world is something that's apparent to all of us. Even the most happy-go-lucky person sees stuff sometimes, and they're just like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm just going to open Netflix. We know. We feel it. So many of us have encountered the brokenness that so often meets us at our doors. And so today you didn't come here just looking for, okay, what's going on? What's going on in the world? You came here for a word of hope. And how does God meet the world in its brokenness? He meets it with his hope. And that's what we're going to see today. 
Genesis 11, we're going to start. It shows us that what God doesn't do. How does God not meet our world in its brokenness? God's answer is not a project. Genesis 11 has so much to say about what faith in the God of the Bible looks like. In Genesis 11, all the peoples of the earth have come to one place. They all have a language in common. It's all shared together. And they, they have the thought. They're like, we should build a tower. We should build a structure that will reach to the heavens and will make a great name for ourselves. Now, just think about this. If you're God, if you're leader of the world, how efficient would it be? Okay, everybody's in the same place. They all have the same language. They're all working together. Like, this is great. Like, why not just co-opt that and say, like, hey, all your little tower building stuff that you're doing, your Lego blocks, whatever that is, awesome. Let me just tell you, I'm the God of the universe. I made every single one of you. And since we're all together in this one place, just know I'm, every once in a while, I'm going to sort of manifest myself in the heavens and remind you that I'm your God to be worshipped, and you guys just keep working along and doing your thing. And yet, that's not what God does. God doesn't enter into a project. He doesn't fast-forward the process. He will not use the means of empire, of tower building, of city building, to enforce the reality that he is God. It would all be so efficient, but God is not a faceless bureaucrat. He doesn't need a tower that extends to the heavens as his temple. Genesis 11 is an exercise in self-salvation. It is the first secular humanist project. Babel is a symbol for all of the ways that we try to fend for ourselves. And they say it. We will make a great name for ourselves. But to make a name for ourselves is to reject the name that God has given us. Daughters and sons made in the image of God. Called to be image bearers, culture bearers. We have a God-given name. It is beloved. It is blessed. Babel is a monument to the human impulse to be our own God. And I know none of you have that impulse. When things are deteriorating around you. Do you try to grasp control? Do you start ordering people around? Or do you panic and run and think that no good thing will ever come your way? That all that awaits you is destruction and despair and loneliness? These are all ways that we try to negotiate with our future. And what we see as we encounter the scriptures is that in our despair, in our brokenness, is that God is meeting us with his presence so God's answer to the brokenness of the world is not a project. It's not a tower. So what does he do? How does God answer the brokenness of our world? And how does God move his purposes forward in the world? Well, we start in the text that Josiah read for us. Now the Lord said to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, said to Abraham, go from your country and go and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. You hear that? The people at Babel in Genesis 11 said, let's make a great name for ourselves. But God says to Abraham, I will make your name great so that the reason I will make your name great 
you will be a blessing. Do not miss that. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's purposes, God's answer to the brokenness of our world is not a project, but a people. If Genesis 1 was God constructing a temple that he might fill with his presence, and Genesis 2 was about God's nearness and his call for us to partner with him in stewarding creation in all the goodness of shalom, then it follows that this people will be a people that God will dwell among, and they will uniquely reflect his good purposes in the midst of a world gone wrong. You see... We talk about it every week, but if we could summarize the Bible in one simple phrase, it is God stopping at nothing to be God with us. And this is that first word of God saying, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to dwell among you. And it starts with something that seems so small. He says to Abraham, this no-name family, this nothing family, that I will be your God. I will make you into a great nation And I will call you blessed. Now, there's only one problem with all these promises that God has been making. It it says in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren. She had no child. Abraham's wife, Sarah, cannot bear children. And in this culture, a culture where a woman's honor is tied to her ability to produce children, mainly sons in a patriarchal culture, A culture where a family's whole goal, their goal in life was not to live the good life and retire. Their goal in life was to reproduce in the world, to extend their name beyond the bounds of their life. In this world, this is a profound crisis. This is not just the ache for wanting to have children that I know so many of you have experienced. This is a, a mark of deep shame on their lives. And Genesis tells us that this vision that God has imparted to Abraham, this promise that he has given them, will be impossible to achieve for this family. Impossible that is short of the creative, generative word of God that spoke in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and and the Lord said, let there be light. That same word meaning us anew. And Ecclesia, God is the God of the impossible. God is the God who says to the barren woman in her shame that I will come to you. God is the God who brings us out of our lowliness and despair and meets us with his presence and his promise. And I know that for so many of us today, we experience the impossible on the daily. We experience the impossible in lives. I was around somebody this week who I love dearly. And that is just so far from a life following Jesus. So cynical, so self-assured. And honestly, when I look at their life, when I have our interactions, I don't see like, oh, I'm certain that person will someday turn and follow Jesus. It is impossible from my perspective. And yet God is the God of the impossible. It is impossible in our sense, in our experiences of life and the brokenness, when we experience relational brokenness or we experience despair and death, it is impossible. And yet with God, all things are possible. He is the God who raises the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. 
this God, this God of the Bible, does not leave us in our despair, does not leave us with it is what it is. He is the great I am. And we come looking for a word of hope in the midst of our brokenness from the God who is able. From the very beginning, the world has hinged upon the very word of God. Hans Urs von Balthasar says that even in heaven, we shall never cease to hang upon every word from his mouth. His word sustains us. His promise meets us. And I don't know about you, but I need that good news today. And notice the promise that is given to Abraham. God will bless him. And friends, I, I think we just, we miss this. This word bless is just like, uh, if you're from the South, it's like a, it's kind of an insult. Bless your heart. And it's just not a word that we use very much. But blessing is, we, we, we did a whole teaching series on this because I believe in this so profoundly. Blessing is not just, hey, I think good things about you. I want to I pronounce good words over your life. Blessing is a force. And this is God's movement towards us is blessing. The world is woven through and through with blessing from the very beginning. God keeps saying as he surveys his work, it is good. And when God comes to Abraham in the midst of his brokenness, in the midst of the brokenness of the world, God says, I will bless you. But a response is demanded. It's fascinating that there's no introduction between God and Abraham. We're not told of Abraham's background with God, how he grew up in the church, how he did, you know, memorized all the Sunday school verses. We're not told perfect attendance. All we're told is that God says to him, go. A response is demanded, go. The initial word spoken to Abraham, kind of like the let there be in Genesis 1. The word of command, like the word of promise, is a gift of grace, but we have to receive it. We have to respond to it in obedience. The only way to the promises of God is the obedience of faith. In the context of Genesis, this is a stunning sequence of events. Following the disobedience in the garden of Genesis 3, humanity has been defined by alienation and dislocation, east of Eden, far from home. And God's response to this is not Abraham, make a great home in this space. God's response is to go. To go from your home, go even further. For Abraham to go from his homeland was a call to sever ties with all that he had known. Again, this was not an individualized society like we live in. This was a Middle Eastern society, a a family-oriented patriarchal culture. To leave your homeland was not just to say, hey, Dad, I'm moving to New York City. That's our world. Now, for this world, this was a profound sense of removing yourself from your identity and your life. And yet God says to Abraham, go, and I will make your name great. This is what faith is. To leave behind our projects that attempt to make a name for ourselves, to make security for ourselves, and to receive the word of God with all its promises and its demand. Go. Paul reflects on this word to Abraham in Romans chapter 4. He writes, and this is kind of an extended bit of scripture, and I always want to warn you uh, when I do this, just, just let it saturate. Let it marinate. I know when we read quotes in scriptures, it's always like, okay, is he done? Just a little extended time in Romans 4. Paul writes, 
For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Against the sweeping tide of entropy as the curse pervades the world, as the brokenness that we all know so well is surrounding Abraham, God meets the world with his creative word anew. He makes a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant with Abraham in this world of dislocation and alienation is about a nation that will be sprung from Abraham's life, is about a family, and it's about a place. The covenant with Abraham is about land, about a land that will be given to the nation that will spring up from Abraham's lineage. This covenant with Abraham will form one of the fundamental strands. As we're tracing the big story of the Bible, this is one of those background notes that will start out playing like a beautiful violin solo, and then will keep playing on even as other instruments take their place in the symphony. To a dislocated and alienated people, God promises a homeland. But, and here's the catch, the only way to reach that homeland is to go. Is to leave everything we've ever known behind. Jesus would say it like this, follow me. Jesus is inviting us into his way. When we talk about the way of entropy and brokenness, hello, a friend, it's totally fine. When we talk about those things, we like kids better than adults here, so it's really not a big deal. But when we talk about those things, we talk about this sense of wanting God to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. We live in a world of dislocation and alienation, and God is inviting us to a covenant, a covenant about place and people. A covenant is a call for us to also participate. A covenant is not just God saying, hey, I'm going to do these things for you. It is saying, now here's your end of the bargain. And friends, we live in a world that is marked by the same sort of entropy and brokenness. Paul writes to his apprentice Timothy, he says uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you must understand this, that in the last days, and that phrase is loaded with meaning, distressing times will come 
For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. God's covenant promises will be ratified in the birth of his son Isaac. Abraham and Sarah wait a long time, longer than anybody would think possible, for God to bring Isaac forth in the world. As Paul says in Romans 4, he was like 100 years old, which is kind of gross if we're being honest. (laughs) This story sets up the biblical theme of rescue. Salvation through the birth of a child, through the presence of God in a people. Jesus of Nazareth will not just be another child in that long line of of promises fulfilled, but Emmanuel, God, with us. His birth, the incarnation of God, the wonder of God and humanity mingled into one. His birth will be the light of salvation calling us to go from our homeland to follow Jesus, to repent. And we'll continue to see the wonder of God's salvation as we look at the central salvation story next week in the Exodus. As God liberates a people enslaved, as God makes a people out of a people enslaved. And throughout his life, Jesus will sound the call again and again, follow me, and he sounds it to us today. Follow him. Leave behind our projects of self actualization of self-affirmation, of self-pleasuring, of uh, self-sustaining. Leave behind those things and welcome the salvation of our God who meets us with his promise and his presence. Abraham is called to go. Jesus calls us to take up our cross. To move towards something is to move away from something else. In the biblical lexicon, the language, the word is to repent. And I'm no fire and brimstone preacher. I'm not going to say there's all these things waiting on you over here. But I know that Jesus meets us with his word of confrontation far more than I would like to admit. That my ways are not his ways. That my defaults are not Jesus' defaults. But he has a better way for me. He's not saying that to say, look how messed up and screwed up you are. He's saying, there's fullness right here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come receive Come, all who are thirsty, and I will give you living water. This is who our God is. And I know for me, this word from John that I'm going to read over you has been so powerful. And I I pray that it is for you. John writes to his church. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world or all that is in the world. The desire of the flesh The desire of the eyes, the pride and riches come not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away. But those who do the will of God live forever. Now the phrase, the world, has many meanings in the library of scriptures. But John is not here talking about people. You know, John also writes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. No. John is not telling us, warning us away, that uh, some sort of over-spiritualized vision of the world. Dallas Willard says, the world is our our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. 
What John is talking about here, he defines for us in that very phrase. He says, the, do not love the world means the desire of the flesh. Lust, be they sexual desires for gratification, for control, our disordered appetites. Do not gratify those things. The desire of the eyes, greed. Let us make a great name for ourselves. The delusion that having more will satisfy us or will so buffer us against the realities of life that we can be our own God. The pride in riches, autonomy, self-determination. John says that these things do not live in this way. But he also says that great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called his daughters and his sons. Jesus is calling us to leave these things behind, love of the world, and to receive the goodness that was given to us in the beginning, to receive his life for us. God dwelling in the midst of a people is not just the hope of the world, God's answer to the distortion of shalom. It's the promise of blessing to each one of us. It's the promise of fullness that he holds for each one of us. God wants to come and dwell in our hearts. And I'm going to invite our, our worship team up as we move to a time of prayer and response. God says to Abraham, I will turn you into a, a nation more numerous than the stars, the sands on the shore. And his impossible word that he spoke to Abraham, that he spoke to Sarah and said, I'm going to give you a son, is that same impossible word that is spoken to us. That there is more to this life than what we could make for ourselves. I'm going to bless you. And his word is the same as it, as it was to Abraham, is the same to us to go. Follow Jesus. Receive his life. Stop trying to make it on your own. Receive the, the reality that God is maybe better than you have thought. And today, I just simply want to bring us to this point that against the entropy and brokenness of the world, God meets us with his word anew and just says, receive my life. Turn from those things. And friends, like, I've, I've been at this a little while. There's two things that go on here, and it goes on in my life too. It's like that deep ache for something so beautiful. You're like, yeah, I want that. I want that blessing. I want that fullness. But I also feel really attached to these things, and I'm also kind of honest about life. And, you know, I don't know how I think about these, like, big one-off changes. I don't know. I've had moments in my life where a corner has turned, and I've never looked back. I've had moments in my life where I turned the corner 40 times, and I'm like, I've just been walking in a circle here. But what I want to say to you today is that this word, go from your country, is the introduction of a story and a life. This call to Abraham is the beginning, not the end. It is the start of the story. And that for so many of us, even if you've, like, you feel like you've been showing up to church for a while, that maybe today God is saying, don't love the world, don't love these things. There's a better way. Turn, repent, receive the story and the goodness of it. And today, we just want to open up space for what God might be doing in our midst. And some of that may be response and just saying, I want to go. And there's going to be people up here that are going to be uh, willing to pray with you if you'd like just kind of a, a conversion point, a conversation point around that. But I also encourage you, like, I think sometimes you, you sort of have that sense and you're like, ah, I don't know, it's a, it's a small room. I don't really want to get up in front of people. Don't let today go by without God's word, his impossible commanding, gracious word, meeting you anew. Jesus died for us to bring us fullness of life, forgiveness of sins, 
And we remember that every time we come to the table. And if you have your elements here today, I invite you to pull them out. If you don't, we have some at the back. Thank you, Mal. Mal's in the back walking around if you need. Jesus said that when we receive this meal, we receive his life, his body, his blood. And it's not just a payment for all the things that we do wrong. It is an invitation and an immersion in this blessing that God promised to Abraham. It is our participation in the fulfillment of this promise. This nation that was promised to Abraham several thousand years ago. You are the fulfillment of that. You are Abraham's wildest dream. Because of what Jesus has done, this nation that was promised to him is blessing the world. This church that Jesus gave his life for, his body, is a blessing to the world. Let us receive this together.